Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hi, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. And welcome back to you. Welcome back to me. Yeah, Thank you. Mostly. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us again. <laughs> I am, Fearless I am your, your erstwhile host. <laughs> glad to be back with you guys and glad to have skipped a section that would have been a little harder to talk about than the action we get Thank you, in was. today's readings. But before, <laughs> before we do any of that, I'm going to break the rules. You're breaking the rules? I am. Oh, the timeline rules? Yeah, I'm breaking the timeline <laughs> rules in order to say, behold today, it is Megan's birthday. And <laughs> there was great rejoicing. Megan. Great rejoicing. There's great rejoicing. Thanks, guys. Thanks for rejoicing about me. So whoever you are and wherever or whenever you are listening to this, <laughs> this is a great excuse to get on the Facebook page and issue some felicitations <laughs> to... Megan. <laughs> it is now permanently my birthday in this episode. Always. On the record, <laughs> always your, your birthday. birthday. No matter when you listen to it, it is my birthday. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It makes me feel eternal in some ways. Kind of yeah. like you know, a great work of literature. <laughs> it is now on the record. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I so today's as we were discussing it off the air, today's episode is going to be about a couple of really important ideas that I think might sit at the heart of the of the novel. We made it, in other words. We made it to the meat. <laughs> of we what's going to happen? Megan and I talked about this last time. I mean, look at how far we are in the book. Did you it's think crazy. it would take this long to get to the barricades, Ian? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You did? This makes sense to you? We were saying we thought this book was about the barricades, and you can't say that if you only first start talking about them at page 1076. <laughs> no, I definitely <laughs> thought it would take this long, for sure. But I suppose I knew that the, I knew how the musical had adapted and shortened things. So I sort of anticipated that the barricades would be kind of a little blip that they chose as a climactic moment to organize a musical around but that the story would have more to do with Valjean. That's what I was anticipating. Well, bully for you in guessing correctly. I thought it was about the barricades <laughs> and also the sewers, neither of which we've sniffed at this point. That's a great sniffed. point. Where are these legendarily <laughs> long sewer passages? <laughs> we were told would waft throughout the book. Oh, I was looking ahead and I, I think I can guess what chapters they're going to be. We Don't have some oh, coming no. in in the book Jean Valjean because we're almost done with uh, Saint-Denis. We've got one more episode after this one and then we hit Jean Valjean and chapters two and three are called The Intestine of Leviathan. Well, that's probably about the sewers. <laughs> yeah, probably. Muck but soul is chapter three. So that's... I'm sorry, muck but soul? So what is... <laughs> So it's going to muck my soul. I think that sentence deserves just a little pause. It's all about timing. Muck, but soul. Or muck, but soul. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's good stuff right there. That's all Hugo. He wrote that chapter title. Emily did not make that up. <laughs> to be fair, it might not be quite French, so funny in I French. Think, is it ma? No, I don't think that's the same. <laughs> oh, the word, the word, but the conjunction? Yeah. May. Yeah. <laughs> May. 
I'm really flexing a little French knowledge. <laughs> well, but not really. To drag uh, to drag this hilarious conversation back on course, we have made it to the meat. And one of the things that I see suggested immediately in book 12 here, Corinth, is that the origin of this revolutionary activity is in the pub, <laughs> which I think is really interesting. And I want the two of you to discuss it. Go. Well, I have thoughts, but Ian, as our like local biblical scholar, do you think that there's any significance to the fact that the pub is named Corinth? Right. I was just going to ask that because we hear that the the place is not originally named Corinth. That's kind of a name that grows up around it. It originally was called the Pot of Rose, the Pot of Roses. And then the landlord like uh, paints a picture of grapes on the side of the building because this is great wine in here. Come taste these grapes. And it's called the Grapes of Corinth. And it kind of, you know, grows and changes with the neighborhood. But do you think there's thematic significance to the city of Corinth? I, I don't know and hadn't thought of it. I wish I had a really cool answer for you. I have no idea. It would be funny if there were some thematic significance to it, given that he goes to great lengths to demonstrate that it was not intentionally named. You know, I have I am not the biblical scholar in our midst, so I'm just going to forge ahead boldly into waters I know nothing of. But isn't Corinthians, the book of the Bible that talks about love, it's got the love chapter in it. Mm-hmm. And isn't it the theme yeah. of this revolution, according to Enjolras, our angel of, of revolution, the theme is love, love in the future. So war today. Ooh, that's fun. That is fun. I like that. I like that a lot. But I think it's also interesting to notice that our section for the day doesn't start with Ansel Ross. It starts with Grand Terre. Well, actually, no, it starts with this little history of Corinth, which I, to, to go back to your question, thoughts on the significance of it. I see him setting up this history of the barricades with the, the faux pas that the owner makes when oh, he yes. comes up with this dish, the, car- oh, yeah. the carpe gras. <laughs> But he can't spell, so he, he spells it carpogra, uh, which is his, his carp stuffed with whatever it's whatever gras is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> with some gras, a good amount of that. <laughs> but it it loses some of its letters, and then it, it begins to say carpora, sees the hours, and which takes on thematic significance. I mean, first of all, the this idea of it being a place of, of fellowship and drinking they that's what they say seize the hours right seize the hours enjoy them with good food and good wine and and good fellowship but then also that kind of stands over uh this uprising seize the hours now is the time and that was never the intention of that saying that the guy painted on the wall it was something utterly different something banal that he intended to advertise and dare you say it providence is the one who shapes this banal common phrase into something that holds deeper significance for the future maybe i mean i i'd like to think so and i think from the rest of the discussions we've had we can assume so it's not clear in this bit though i think this was this was honestly supposed to be kind of a joke I think he's I think he's chuckling. I mean, the line is awesome. So it happened that without knowing French, Father Hucheloup <laughs> had known Latin 
that he had brought philosophy out of his kitchen and that desiring simply to eclipse Karem, he had equaled Horace. And what was striking was this also meant enter my wine shop. <laughs> I think well, that I whole think thing is Hugo funny. does poke fun at people. Like, just like he's poking fun at Marius and then also using him as his mouthpiece. Yeah. Like, I think that he he sees the activity of people, the limited vision of people acting on their day-to-day lives in yeah. this common, unimportant day-to-day life. He sees it as silly and us as silly and thinking that our, our little activities hold any meaning. But... Also, there's a gravity that lies behind it. Mm-hmm. There is significance to our activities. We just aren't, we don't have enough foresight to see what they are. That's well said. What do you think, Megan? I think that too. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, what I was thinking about when I was reading this section was Tolstoy again. It's because we had him on the brain for two who years, but also because he writes about these ideas. Yep. Right. These guys are writing about the same stuff. And so it's kind of odd. Their vision of history and the way that the that the matters of each individual's heart are somehow signifiers of what's going to happen in the broad mass of people, but not because that individual can really make a difference and so on and so on. Dare That's we really use interesting. The phrase, a multiplicity of causes. <laughs> oh, Megan, you've caused our our audio editor's death. Just yeah, that. I just think you I never wanted to hear the phrase again. again. At one, at one, point, <laughs> at one point, Shad told us that, that he would throw himself into the Grand Canyon if we <laughs> the phrase, I know. a multiplicity of causes. Or was that the one or was it? Oh, I don't remember. Anyway, sorry about that, Shad. <laughs> Ian, you asked also at the beginning of the episode about the, it being in a pub and the significance of that. And Well, yeah, and I, that's wrapped up in Grand Terre, right? I mean, his... maybe. I have to admit that where my brain goes, and I hadn't thought of this before until you said that, but where my brain goes is the opening chapters of A Tale of Two Cities. Oh. Where but and I don't I don't think that Hugo's doing the same thing here, but you remember how like the the barrel of wine spills on the ground before oh, the French Revolution yeah. and yeah. the people are desperate and lapping up the wine and he compares it to the blood and it's like they're frenzy they're feeding frenzy on yeah. the blood. I don't I think that the wine is meant to represent something more positive here, but I don't know. It's interesting well, that both authors turn to wine for to represent the revolution well, in to France. To tie in it's, one more thing, biblical imagery, you know? Right. Yeah. It's very Christian. Blood is wine, wine is blood, and it's especially salvific blood or sacrificial blood and wine are are the same thing in the Christian West. But I do think it's like you said just a second ago, in this instance, something a little bit more jolly, but nonetheless significant, right? Because what I'm working on, and you guys have to help me because I haven't really developed this fully, but we have Grantaire, we have Anzoras, we have Marius, and we have Gavrash. All four of these are valid expressions of France, of the heart mm-hmm. of France in this era that Hugo's writing about. And there are good things and bad things about each of the four. But I think he I think he's using these four men to characterize um, what he considers to be good and beautiful and worth fighting for in France and maybe in Paris specifically. While on the other side, you have this impersonal caricature of Javert. And of the army that's slowly the image towards the end of the section for today, where you're seeing 
you're seeing the the battlefield basically you're seeing paris from an owl's eye view which is an awesome image you have the armies and the government cinching like a like a hangman's noose around the center of the city around the heart of paris mm-hmm. and so i think inside that ring inside the noose we have these four different expressions of paris's heart so i want to i want to kind of talk about them maybe one at a time and see what you guys think uh think about that idea well you're right Grantaire comes first and his little diatribe is super interesting because it's it is slightly nihilistic slightly atheistic yeah or at least what's the word i'm looking for blasphemous in some way (laughs) um that's not the word but um he he points out all of the evils of revolution though and like those two things together he speaks a lot of of wisdom but from a worldview that i happen to think our author doesn't endorse but and then he ends his long meditation on how god must be poor to hand us revolutions to fix his mistakes etc cetera, etc cetera, right by commenting on marius and he says exactly what we've been saying. That, yeah. that they, they, their ch- kisses chased. They lay together in the stars. Right? It's all, <laughs> it's, it's all romantic and idealistic. And he pokes fun at him. And and there's a lot of wisdom in what he says. And yet, don't think that that's where Hugo lands himself. I think you might be right. I want to read that. I want to read that section really quickly. A revolution, what does that prove? That God is hard up. He makes a coup d'etat because there is a solution of continuity between the present and the future, and because he, God, is unable to join the two ends. And then skipping down a little bit, I suspect that God is not rich. He keeps up appearances, it's true, but I sense the pinch. He gives a revolution as a merchant whose credit is low gives a ball. We mustn't judge the gods by appearances. That's an ironic statement. That's Yeah, I thought that too. I have that underlined. Beneath the gilding of the sky, I catch a glimpse of a poor universe. Creation is bankrupt. That's why I am a malcontent. (laughs) He's a very eloquent drunk guy. Yeah, he sure Mm -hmm. is. I will say that. (laughs) But I do wonder if it hangs on that line. We mustn't judge the gods by appearances. He's saying, look at how beautiful the world is or how rich it looks. In nature, God is poor. And yet one could say, look at how, look at the suffering of revolution and the bloodshed. You must not judge God by appearances. That could be turned mm-hmm. on its head. And yet I, I sympathize with him, right? Well, yeah. And it's also, if we're talking about each of these men as expressions of Paris's heart or mind, there is something... Because where Grantaire's story for this section is going to end is in a rebuke from Anzoras, right? Hey, go sleep it off somewhere else. We have more important things to do here than be as drunk as you are. And Grantaire's response is what we've come to expect from him, which is awe and love for Anzoras and for his example, right? Almost hero worship. And I think a desire to feel what Anzoras feels. And so there's something of the Angelros image that the Grand Terre at the heart of Paris desperately needs. And I guess my question is, is there something in the Grand Terre that the Angelros needs as well? Mm. 
or maybe that the Marius needs. That one's a little easier, perhaps. <laughs> the Marius. <laughs> the Marius. Megan, what do you think? You look thoughtful over there. No, I just think all these ideas are great. I I definitely think Grantaire is a cynic, but he strikes me as a as a sort of a wise fool character. And you should never toss out the baby with the bathwater when a character like that speaks. So on the one hand, his perceptions of God as as a pauper who's trying to cover up his mistakes are not Hugo speaking. I agree with that. But I also think that he is the voice of the malcontented revolutionaries in so many ways, more than Angel Ross. I mean, I think Grantaire's perspective is what drives Monsieur Mabeuf, for example, to join the revolution. I think that it drives Gavroche, if Gavroche were articulate enough to explain. I think that Grantaire's perception of reality is the voice of so much of Paris that he belongs. And he's got his finger on the pulse of the real man in a way that Angel Ross does not. So that might be what he offers to the revolution. But that being said, he's also a Sidney Carton to bring in Tale of Two Cities. He's a Sidney (laughs) Carton of a guy who doesn't have the ability to inspire those around him. He's a laughingstock. Even in a group of three drunkards, he's the drunkard they're laughing at. You know, he's the drunkest. Right. So, (laughs) of course, he's inspired by this image of perfection in Angel Ross. And he, Angel Ross is the leader for sure. I just think that at the heart of things, he speaks the truth from his limited perspective. He's the voice of Paris and his loyalty is something that Angel Ross should prize. Mm-hmm. Well said, Megan. I yeah. like that a lot. I like that too. He seems to speak for the suffering of the little people, the very real suffering that's taking place here. For if Hugo really does think that this isn't, uh, let's see, what was he drew the distinction between an insurrection and an uprising, and this mm-hmm. is this is a moral good, right? This is an insurrection. Mm-hmm. But he keeps giving us the perspective of these people who are really not being treated well by it. Like think about. Madam Hushaloop. <laughs> Hushaloop. That can't be right. It isn't. Oh, I'm not ever going to correct it, though. It's so funny. <laughs> We've done a lot more funny pronunciations than we have real ones in this show. <laughs> Hushaloop. Uh, Hushaloop. She, she watches her, her shop that was her beloved husband's that she has been running in his absence. Not well. But but out of love for him because she grieves his absence and it's being torn down brick by brick around her ears. And mm-hmm. Hugo says something to the effect of uh, she didn't understand what was being done for her. Here it is, 1094. Mother Hushaloop, in this reparation they were making her, did not seem to understand her advantage very clearly. Oh, keep reading. That part's really good. She was satisfied after the manner of that Arab woman who, having been struck by her husband, went to complain to her father crying for vengeance and saying, Father, you owe my husband a blow for a blow. The father asked, which cheek did he strike? The left. The father struck the right cheek and said, now you're satisfied. Go tell your husband he struck my daughter, but I've struck his wife. (laughs) Right? So like it just in the fight for these ideals, which Hugo is not denouncing, there are real ideals that are worth fighting for. And yet the cost is borne by the people. Yeah, who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of this revolution in the first place. I think that's an interesting contradiction, too, because if if the people are Paris, quote unquote, Andre Ross says that what he's waiting for is for Paris to rise. 
and join him in defending itself. But if, you know, Mother Hushaloop or whatever her name is and Grantaire are the voices of the people for real, Enjolras steps on them and rejects them. So his principles and the reality of his actions are in conflict. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But I also think that there is a, a valid expression of the heart of Paris in Enjolras as well. Mm-hmm. So if, if Grantaire's excesses are the ones that come along with the things he does represent about the city, that must be true of Enjolras too. Yeah, Enjolras, his little, they each get a little diatribe, they each get a little monologue, and his comes after his execution of the man who who kills the doorkeeper mm-hmm. at the window, which of course, like, that's that's horrible, and you do, like, there you do need to maintain moral discipline in your ranks if you want this to be taken seriously. And he says on page 1111, <laughs> one word more, in executing that man, I obeyed necessity. But necessity is a monster of the old world. The name of necessity is fatality. Now the law of progress is that monsters disappear before angels and that fatality vanish before fraternity. This is a bad time to pronounce the word love. No matter, I pronounce it and I glorify it. Love, yours is the future. Death, I use you, but I hate you. Citizens in the future, there shall be neither darkness nor thunderbolts, neither ferocious ignorance nor blood for blood. As Satan shall be no more, so Michael shall be no more. In the future, no man will slay his fellow. The earth will be radiant. The human race will love. It will come, citizens, that day when all shall be concord, harmony, light, joy, and life. It will come, and it is so that it may come that we are going to die. He's describing heaven. Yeah. He's not describing a state that's possible on earth. Mm -mm. And yet they die so that this progress may take place. And I think Hugo's okay with that. Like the fact that this ideal, I don't know. I want you guys to tell me what you think about this. But like we've been going round and round the mountain of like, does, does Hugo think that progress is possible on earth? Or is the ideal something that's possible to achieve in in this world? And I think the answer is no. And yet, that does not change the fact that he thinks that we should fight for it. What do you think? I'm torn. I think I agree with you. Because I don't get the sense that he is um, describing Anzaras in a way that, that should cause us to fear him or to criticize him. He's described only as noble and a little tragic. Because of how good he is in his heart and how horrible what's going to happen to him is, by contrast, right? So so you're right. There is something blessed in the way that Hugo writes this character. But we get a reflection of his idealism in Marius's speech. And there is a lot to criticize there. Megan, what do you think? Well, you go ahead first. I, I'm not done with Angel Ross, so I hope we're not moving on to Marius never to return. Um, oh, no, but no, make no, your point first. No, all I was saying is that it isn't it isn't his dewy-eyed idealism that makes Enjolras respectable. It's something else. Because we get dewy-eyed idealism from Marius as well. And Marius <laughs> and is painted as... Yeah. Exactly. He's painted as a little ridiculous and worthy of critique. So that's all I mean. But go ahead, but, Megan, on Enjolras. Yeah. Well... The thing that I was struck by about Enjolras is this 
I think what you guys have already articulated, this duality of his character, that he's holy. He's described as holy in a lot of ways. And we're supposed to look up to him as a priest figure. He uses the word priest and angel to describe Andrew Ross over and over again. But one of the ways that we can know a character beyond just what the author tells us about him in his description We can learn about him by the way that his fellows respond to him and what they say to him and of him. And I was struck by how his friends look at him in this moment after the the scene that you've just read, Emily. They look at him with admiration. It's described as admiration, not unmingled with compassion. This severe young man, executioner and priest, luminous like the crystal and rock also that struck me that they were admiring like Grantaire and compassionate like pitying. And more than just this guy's perfect, he's going to die. I saw something in that there's a compassion for limitedness in him. He's a rock. He's unfeeling. He's a crystal. He's glowing. But that's not the description of a heart. You know, a rock and a crystal is unfeeling and inhuman and I don't know, not even animalistic. You know, it's like justice. Absolutely like a symbol of justice, which put me in mind of another character. Javert is described much this way. I mean, he's described as a dog. So actually he's animalistic in the extreme. But he also is a symbol of justice and perfection and unyielding law in the story. And I I was struck by a similarity between the two of them. Maybe they're they're foils for one another in in this aspect. What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, I think that's true. And that makes me want to ask, what's the difference between them? Because Hugo does treat them differently. I think he treats Enjolras with a, a deference that he doesn't give to Javert. Or when he does, it's it's not the same tone, you know? The difference that I can see between the two of them is that Enjolras gets his ideas about what is to be done, gets his commitments from the actual fled and, like flesh and blood people around him. He cares... He cares for his friends and he cares for the city and it's human. Um, Javert cares for justice only as an ideal. Right. I think I actually don't see that Enjolras connects with people more than Javert does. He also is a symbol and not not looking behind him and cultivating relationships. He's just standing for something just like Javert is. But what he's standing for, the principle that he stands on is a relational one. He says, I stand for love. And Javert says, I stand for law. And Mm, the law has no ability but to kill. And love, at least in principle, is about lifting up your neighbor. Javert wants to, to catch his neighbor out, no matter who he is. Yeah. Do you think it's maybe more than love? It's uh, progress, which is a relational principle, right? To progress is to to free the people step by step so that. Because he describes utopia in that speech, right? Right. So maybe on in the same way that Javert is is a caricature of the law, Enjolras stands in for progress. Hmm. I like that. That would explain the compassionate tone because Enjolras stands for Hugo's pet project. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yet he's self-aware enough to realize, like you were saying, Megan, that that's not ultimately a human stance mm-hmm. that's sustainable. But it is. It's inspiring. I think the purpose yeah. of it is to inspire his neighbor and that he succeeds in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so blind. Ian's got sun in his eyes. <laughs> there's no, there's nowhere to escape from this sun. That feels symbolic desk. in some way. 
<laughs> the light, the light reaches everything. Um, I know that we want to talk about Marius at some point, but while my last thought on Angel Ross is a different foil, we talked about Angel Ross being a foil or a comparison to Javert, but I also think that he has another foil in Gavroche. Oh yeah, in the section that we see, Gavroche is described as like the the fly on the revolutionary coach. He's inspiring. He's a little whirlwind, you know, swirling a great dervish. Passage. He's prodding everyone and yet annoying at the same time. Super <laughs> annoying, but driving everyone forwards in, in progress. And he's inspired by the band and has joined wholeheartedly. But Angel Ross alone is trying to swat him away, to use the fly analogy. And Gavroche says, I want a gun. I had a gun last time there was a revolution and I would like <laughs> one now because I'm going to be so, so helpful with it. And Ross shrugs his shoulders and says, when there are enough guns for the men, we'll give them to the children. Gavroche turned fiercely and answered him, if you're killed before me, I'll take yours. Gamin, said Ross. Smooth face, said Gavroche. <laughs> and then a stray dandy, so a third young person in the scene, wanders in, gets scared and runs away. And I think that the presence of the dandy made me realize that the two of these characters, Ross and Gavroche, are supposed to be foils for one another in that moment. They're both examples of youth that is on fire with an idea. And though Ross says, I'm an adult and you're a kid. What we're supposed to see as the readers are, you know, a progression of youth. And both Ross and Gavroche are going to be casualties, young casualties of their idealism. And yet the, I don't know, I, I understand the significance and importance of Ross, And yet when they give Angel, or, um, they give Gavroche the job of scouting and he says, little people are good for something too. Mm-hmm. Right. And, Little people know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I say it the whole time. <laughs> there's just, there's, I think the little people are, are at the heart of this novel. Yeah. Yeah. He's, Gavroche says, trust the little folks, dist- distrust the big. Yeah. And then immediately catches Javert mm-hmm. in his Yeah, spying. he, because he, he knows. Yep. He's the common sense in a way of the party. Hmm. Well, we, we're running out of time here, but let's talk Marius just for a minute because he's been summoned. He, he's found that Cosette has left and he's pretty sure she's left for good. And then he's <laughs> so he summoned. He's right. He's summoned to the barricades <laughs> and is like, perfect. Now my suffering will end. And he you know, makes his way through the dark city. It's during this walk of his that we get what, what I think was the coolest image in the whole section about that owl's eye view of Paris with the news cinching around it. It was really cool. It's the whole route was like a descent down a flight of dark stairs. Another right. descent. Yep. That image comes up over and over again. So what do we notice about Marius here? I just oh, I'm so bugged. <laughs> I just think he's so buggy. Yeah. He's getting worse. Every time he encounters a problem, his response is not, I can fix this or I wonder what's going to come of this or anything that I would find (laughs) relatable. Instead, he like he says, woe is me and I wish I were dead and puts his head in his hands and and cries and thinks of his dad and says, I'm not worthy. I mean, every single time he encounters a hiccup, this is his response. Oh, my goodness. I'm having a rough time. I don't know that I'm great to talk about Marius. Megan, I completely agree with you that he is ridiculous. And yet. 
again, just like with his love letter to Cosette, he opens, like Hugo opens the floodgates. He sits there on the rock right in front of the barricade and thinks. And then he starts soliloquizing about the nature of this war. And uh, it sounds like Hugo to me. Yeah. The part where he says, this is no longer a question of sacred territory, but of a holy idea. It reminded me that this is what Hugo said to us in his own voice. He said, here's the difference between an insurrection and yeah, a, yeah. what is it, an <laughs> uprising or a riot, or he used so many words. But here's the difference between two words that are not different. <laughs> one of them is about a moral idea, and that's the good one. An insurrection is driven by a holy idea. It's got morality at its heart. And here's Marius talking about the holy idea. He says, the country laments, but humanity applauds. Is it true that the country is mourning? France is bleeding, but liberty smiles. And seeing the smile of liberty, France forgets her wound. Civil war. I do think that might be Hugo okay, talking. Uh, what does it mean? What do we do? What is it good for? <laughs> Get out of here, Emily. <laughs> what do we do, though, with the fact that this is a doomed effort and we know it? It's, right. And he's, he's already, it's not just that we know it because we know the story. He's already mentioned it in describing the barricade that all these little boys are going to die. I, but Ian, you have to sure 1832 is a doomed effort, but 1848 is coming. You know, like I just think that you have to take the Hugo wants us to see this as a minor, like as a tragedy on the path towards a final victory, and the victory is out there, and that's kind of the thematic point. But it's not, it's not ultimately future, yeah. purposeless, right? <sighs> No, I no, I think you're right. I just had a really hard time. We were talking about this before we got on the air. I had a hard time getting past the part where Hugo, in my mind, Hugo's a couple bottles in <laughs> and a couple packs of cigarettes. And he's wearing his stereotypical striped shirt and being so French. Like here he is on his French hobby horse talking about France bleeding, France forgetting her wound because revolution is the point of being French. And he's just and I'm just thinking looking of like, at himself the in the mirror. Always on strike. Yeah, <laughs> when the master falls, the in little France, navel he falls everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paris is the center of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's interesting that he keeps choosing Marius as his mouthpiece. And yet he's not, he doesn't seem to be unaware of, of Marius's naivety. Well, what I said a second ago is that, that there's little to criticize about Angelos. And, but Mar but Marius bugs everyone. And it makes me wonder if we're getting a truer picture of Hugo's, inner thoughts from Angel Ross than we are from Marius. But he doesn't give Angel Ross that many words. Like he doesn't put his own thoughts in Angel Ross's mouth. It's always Marius. I guess my question was, what, how do you know? Well, but it might, because Angel Ross hardly says anything. I think you're on the right track, Ian, but I think maybe a, another conclusion is actually that Angel Ross is the glowing ideal, but Marius is the human reality. It's a, yes, it's, I get that. He's absorbing these ideals and they are like, come. Uh, it's that like Hegelian, like, um, warring, like the future wars with the past. He says that a couple of times. Mm. This is like the ideal meeting the feet of clay. And it's like Marius is a vessel being used for good and yet he remains human. Mm hmm. I wonder if that might not be the takeaway. Huh. So I wonder, this line stood out to me, and I wonder if that's if this is kind of a summary of what you're saying. Hugo, speaking through Marius, says, 
men must be aroused, pushed, shocked by the very benefits of their deliverance, their eyes wounded with the truth, light thrown at them in terrible handfuls. They should be blinded a little for their own safety. This dazzling awakens them. I wonder if Ross is the dazzling truth. The revolution that they're about to experience is light thrown at them in terrible handfuls. And Marius is who we should watch for someone waking up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that image of light is really important in this novel. That's the the light of education, right? The light of the intellect waking up. So I guess my last question before we wrap it up for the day is, what do you guys make of the flag? I mean, the, the flag that's lit up from behind and looks like blood. Mm-hmm. You the people sing. Yeah, it's the only. It's the only. Um, I feel my soul on fire. It's the only point of light in the entire center of the city. Mm-hmm. Is the way he describes it. And we were just talking about how important light is, right? It symbolizes the intellect, education, freedom, liberty. It symbolizes all of those things. And in this moment, it's the only point of light, in at least in Marius's field of view. Yeah. And what it's illuminating is the flag, the red. blood. Yeah. 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 And yet in the dark of the night as they wait in the silence. <laughs> I have a different song. <laughs> Don't do now. it. In the this dark of the night. Even we'll find it. Is like how Anastasia to eat an elephant. Out there, the, anyone? The, uh, the musical edition of How to Eat an Elephant. Keep your, keep your brain I'm out not, of Russia. I'm not even done because what happens in the silence of the night is the people or the, the men at the barricade come together and they they sing a love song. Drink with me. Yep, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two days. Gone by. <laughs> you're welcome. I knew you were waiting for me. Oh my goodness. So those two things are always in tension, right? It's the it's blood, it's violence. It, just like Angel Ross said, like death, I use you, but I hate you. Right. Because the ultimate goal is the love. Yeah. I know. I mean, as much as we laugh at him, by the end of every section, I think, Hugo, it worked. It worked again. <laughs> this holds together. It's yeah. got a depth to it. You're self-aware about the ridiculous, preposterous moments of romanticism. You've included them, but you're also self-aware about them. And I'm still in. Oh, yeah. And there's something there's something true about it, right? Like to drive people to do this, there must be idealism. Like there must, and he is aware enough to see that it is flawed and it is dangerous. And it's mostly. And it's suffering and it's young. Mm -hmm. And yet it, I mean, I don't know. For people to sacrifice their lives like that, there has to be those, those muddy elements of human nature involved in the ideals as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I, for one. I was going to say, I can't wait to see what happens, but I know what happens. I just, I'm just excited to read it. So let's, let's go off and read some more. Thank you both for your insights today. And thank you listeners for joining us on this episode of How to Eat an Elephant. We will see you next time around. And in the meantime, bon appetit. Happy birthday, me. <laughs> bon appetit. Happy birthday, me. <laughs> and also, bon appetit. Bye-bye. Bye. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. 
Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.